Welcome to episode 183 of the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. Today we're going to continue to look at the uh, results of the 2009 Winter Wonderland workshop in this multi-episode podcast that we've been doing here. Uh, Today's the fourth part and it's probably going to run on for one more after this, so we're almost there. I led the nine-day tour around central and eastern Hokkaido, the northernmost island in Japan, from February 16th to the 24th in 2009. The tour is formatted to concentrate on wildlife photography for the first five days, then move on to do uh, to concentrate more on landscape work for the last four days. On the afternoon of the fifth day, we'd driven through a snowstorm to a hotel in between the Shiritoko Peninsula, where we'd spent the, the last few days, and the Daisetsuzan mountain range. We'd dropped two of the participants off, uh, two of the people that were with us for the first five days were now um, safely winging their way back to Tokyo or uh, one of them was heading off to do a little bit more travelling around Hokkaido. We'd also pick up one more person uh, the following day. Uh, We had a a day where we were down a person in total and we'd pick up one more participant the following day at lunchtime over near where we'd be really starting to get back into the shooting again. We'll pick up the trail here today though on the evening of the 20th of February as I just have to share a mail with you that I picked up on the hotel on that fifth night. So we decided not to shoot in the snowstorm when we got to the hotel at a place called Onniyu between the Shiratoko Peninsula and Asahikawa where we were heading tomorrow. This was not so much because we were sort of scared of the weather or anything. As you'll see, uh, we shot in some pretty harsh conditions over the next few days, as well as those that we'd, we'd been shooting in until this point. Rather, everyone was just uh, pretty tired. So it's a very sort of uh, busy schedule that we, we, yeah, we pack a lot into the tour. So uh, we just sort of, this, this middle afternoon uh, is kind of a sort of relaxing stopgap, um, mainly just a, a, a drive. Um, although, you know, I think if, if the weather had been better, we might have tried to get a little bit of something out of the end of the day. We were just all pretty tired and decided that it would be nice to have a bit of a relax. Um, so, you know, and plus, of course, we'd, we'd already had a, a nice morning in the National Park at Shiritoko. Uh, after dinner, we found that there was a wireless internet connection in the hotel lobby. So we bought a few tinnies and sat around with our laptops, just sort of catching up on mail and showing each other photos, etc. And it was on this evening that I got a mail from a listener that I simply have to read out to you. Um, it's a bit long, so bear with me, but I, uh, I really wanted to uh, share this in full. I, I was thinking of paraphrasing, but I'd probably just ruin it. So here goes uh, a, an email uh, from a listener. Dear Martin, over the last six months, I've begun each day by listening to your podcast as I work out on my elliptic, elliptical trainer. Although I'm not a big fan of my exercise routine, your podcast has turned it into something that I look forward to every morning. Whether you are covering a familiar topic or something completely new, your friendly manner and systematic approach to each subject, uh, each subject allows me to glean something from every episode. Thank you for your, the work that you put into each one of your podcasts. I want, to in, I want to thank you in particular for your episode on the MTF charts 
although I'd read several articles on the subject, it was your podcast that finally allowed me to retain an understanding of the subject. Your episode on Aperture also deserves a mention. While I've understood the, understood the effects of Aperture on image uh, for a long, as long as I can remember, your presentation and accompanying diagrams helped me understand for the first time why uh, things work the way they do. I've also appreciated the opportunity to see some of the Japanese landscape. Your first Hokkaido workshop was a real treat. After listening to the episode in which you described the itinerary and all the necessary gear, I skipped ahead to your podcasts about the trip. It almost felt as if I was on the trip with you. You have a knack of sharing your adventures in such a way that they always they are always engaging in entertainment and your images are outstanding. I'm currently working through working my way through July 2008. Tomorrow morning I bid farewell to your 100 to 400mm zoom. In six weeks or so, I expect to be fully caught up, a milestone I've been looking forward to for some time now. There have been many occasions where I've wanted to participate in some activity or simply respond to, to something you, you've said in a podcast, uh, but have held back because of the fact that I'm so far behind everyone else. Of course, catching up has an obvious downside as well, which brings me to a small favour that I'd like to ask you. Martin, over the last six months, we've become good friends. Although some could argue that this friendship is all in my head, I know that you're not the type of person who would let down a good friend, even if the friendship is, shall we say, untraditional. So here's the favour. I need you to start creating daily podcasts. The current length is good. I just need one a day. I realise that this will represent a small amount of extra work on your part, which is why I'm giving you six weeks' notice. The alternative is not pretty. I get completely caught up on your podcasts and I no longer have a reason to work out on a daily basis. I become fat and unhealthy, eventually reaching a premature end. My wife is left to raise our six-year-old son by herself. I never get to meet my grandkids. I know that this is something you would not want to see happen to a good friend, so I'll just thank you in advance for this minor accommodation. With that small matter out of the way allow me to once again thank you for your podcast i'm looking forward to seeing the latest images from this year's hokkaido hokkaido workshop sincerely tim lynn so i I read this out to the group this is me again now um i read this out to the group in the hotel lobby uh, having read it and like me at first they were all looking a little bit shocked as if saying is this guy for real and then as we got further down to the mail and they realized that it was a joke i, I think um, everybody was just in stitches with laughter. And even funnier, when I, I mailed Tim to ask if it was okay for me to read this one out, his reply was as follows. No worries, Martin. I appreciate your taking the time out from the Hokkaido workshop, workshop to respond. Please feel free to read, read my email out in part or in full as you see fit. I realise that the new podcast regime may you leave in scrambling for topics at first. <laughs> So, uh, you know, this is, it was just, you know, so funny. I I really was, um, we, like I say, we were all in stitches when we read this stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it's amazing. It's just really, really funny. Thanks for taking the time to write that out. Um, I know that it's, uh, it was, you know, it's a really lo- relatively long mail. Um, and also, um, you know, Tim did provide an email address, uh, sorry, a, a website address uh, with his email, uh, which is www.com. Tlin, T-L-I-N-N.com. And uh, I checked out uh, 
the the site and Tim has some amazing photos on there. So please do drop by and uh, and check check out his work while you're there as well. Uh, but thanks again, Tim, for bringing a, an extra uh, laugh for to us all on the uh, on the on the workshop. So moving on, the following morning we started another uh, few hour drive over to Asahikawa, one of the bigger cities in the central part of the island of Hokkaido. We were to pick up Chris from the airport, who would be joining us for the last three days of the lands for the landscape shooting. Uh, the airport is literally on the way to where we're heading which is up into the Daisetsuzan mountain range and national park. The plan was to go to uh, Mount Asahi in a cable car and try to shoot uh, the winter scenes up there. Although the skies were clear for most of the morning, as we drove closer to the area, you know, we could see the, where the mountains should be and it was looking pretty bleak up there. Mount Asahi or Asahidake is the tallest mountain in the Daisetsuzan mountain range and Hokkaido for that matter, at uh, just almost 2,300 metres or uh, 7,516 feet. And mountains this big generally just sort of generate their own weather anyway, and today was no exception. We had planned to shoot in the area uh, on this afternoon and then go up to the top in the, t in the cable car the following morning. The weather forecast was not good though, uh, with lots of snow still forecast, and as it was actually sort of not snowing uh, near the cable car station, we decided to go up to the top and um, kind of in the hope that there'd be a break in the clouds. Uh, when we got up there, it was just a total blizzard, um, you know, worse than it looked from the bottom. Um, we, we took a quick walk out from the station into the snow and uh, I was thinking that we might be able to see something uh, if we did get a break, but it was pretty pointless. You know, it was just driving at us. Um, and although we could have handled the conditions, um, they, you know, just no point there because there was you can't see anything. It was just like a total white world. Uh, we'd seen skiers heading down out uh, into the, uh, you know, up for, they, they got on the same cable car and there was obviously a ski track going down the mountain though. And we figured out that we could probably walk up that ski slope a little bit and see what we could capture. As you can see from image number 2176, there was the odd break in the cloud in the lower parts of the, uh, of the mountain during the afternoon. As these rare patches of blue rolled across the sky, I lined up this patch so that it was, it was kind of you know, where the leaves would be if, if the tree was covered in leaves in the, in the summertime. I shot this with my 14mm f2.8 2 lens sitting in the deep snow at the foot of the tree. Uh, at ISO 100 with the aperture at f8, this required a shutter speed of one, uh, 120th of a second. I've also got a great photo of Graham or NSW, N.S.W, uh, dot, I think, another th three dots, uh, as you'll know him from the forums at martinbaileyphotography.com, as uh, Graham lay down on the ground uh, below this tree with my 14mm, I think he was shooting, uh, just shooting up at the tree, something similar, but just laying flat out on the ground. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm not going to share that photo. I'm going to save that for the book of the trip uh, that we'll put together in the coming months uh, with photos from all participants as well. We walked a fair way up the ski slope in the couple of hours towards the end of the afternoon and uh, had a great time shooting the trees either side in 
image number 2177, you might be able to make out the warmth of the sun shining faintly through the cloud and through the gaps in the trees, um, about a third of the way up, up the frame there. This is a, a great old tree that we found as it had bent over uh, from the weight of the snow that it has to bear each year. Here still at ISO 100, uh, at F8, I had used um, a shutter speed of 1 20th of a second now as the sun got close to the horizon and the light dropped pretty significantly. The snow kept falling uh, on and off through the afternoon, so I should note that I was using the 1DS Mark III for shooting out here. I, I think I mentioned early in, earlier in the series, but whenever the weather was bad, if I, uh, if I only needed one body, it was always the 1DS Mark III. Although we were told that the, um, the 5D Mark II had improved weather, uh, weather sealing uh, over the original 5D, David Lee from the MBP community mailed me on the night before I left um, for Hokkaido to point out an article that had mentioned that a number of 5D Mark IIs had failed on a trip, uh, I think it was to Iceland, that was mentioned on the Luminous Landscape, if I, if I remember uh, correctly. Um, I can't find the link right now, uh, but you know, basically uh, David had, had alerted me to this. Um, and the, these, these uh, 5D Mark IIs had apparently failed in similar conditions to those that we'd been shooting. Uh, there were two 5, 5D Mark IIs on the trip, though, mine and one more. Um, and we did get them cold and wet um, without, any, without them failing. Um, but still, you know, I was being a little bit cautious. Um, the images from the 1DS and uh, Mark III and the 5D Mark II are the same size. And the 1DS is just built like a tank. So it was, it was really an obvious choice. But in the interests of explaining my thought process, I thought I'd just mention this. Another reason that I, uh, I mentioned this is because I was a little bit worried as well, having just bought the 5D Mark II, that it had become my new baby uh, after picking it up, you know, basically just for use as a second camera um, and having paid $8,000 for the for the 1DS Mark III. Uh, I was kind of not wanting that to happen. Um, and now, you know, although I, I think that the 5D Mark II is an excellent camera, um, I was pleased to say from my perspective that it hasn't really become the new baby. Um, I bought the 1DS for its rugged build and, you know, it's, it's a professional body. Um, among other things, you know, the rugged build was one of the things there and it just, it just feels different. And uh, although I'm very careful with my gear, I, I still, in severe weather conditions, just, you know, I don't want to mollycoddle this stuff. I want to be able to just sort of, just use it. Um, and you always find that with the, you know, with the, the mid-range to lower range cameras, you do have to be a little bit more careful with them, even if they, they say they've got better weather ceiling. Um, and, you know, and this thing, I was hoping that we wouldn't need to, but, you know, this uh, this one article that, that we I got I had pointed out to me uh, on the night before kind of made me just want to stick with the 1DS, uh, especially when the, the weather was harsh. Uh, and like I said, the build just feels better, and so it, it just, you know, it, was, it still is the obvious choice. Um... So anyway, if you if you remember, if you have splash-proof and dust-proof lenses, the L lenses, not all of them, but many of the L lenses that Canon puts out as well, if you have those attached to a, a 1DS or a 1D body, uh, you really just don't have to worry about getting it cold, wet, or anything. Um, you know, you just the only thing you have to worry about is keeping drops of water off the front of the front element of the uh, of the lens, which uh, we have to pay a lot of, a pain, of attention to. 
So the sun went down on the 21st and we went to the hotel hoping for clear weather in the morning. Uh, we really wanted to get, get up to the top of the mountain to see if we could shoot the summit um, and you know the surrounding scenery from uh, you know around the cable car and then also if, if possible we wanted to trudge through the snow to the pond that's over near the front of the summit. And the station, um, you know, the you know the bottom where we were we were to get on the cable car was literally a three minute walk from the hotel. So we let the bus driver have a lie in on the twenty second. Uh, after all, it was a Sunday. Uh, not that that mattered to us very much. We'd been on the road for seven days now, and it was it was difficult to keep track of which day was which. Um, you know, the the days of the week just seemed to all merge into one. Um, as we walked across to the cable car uh, station, we could see that though that there was not much point. There was not going to be much point in going up there again. Conditions were, if anything, even worse than the previous day. We walked around and shot more in the area, though, uh, getting some nice winter images, like the the brook that we can see in image number seven. Sorry, two one seven nine. This is a three point two second exposure at f eleven ISO one hundred. We actually all got very similar shots of this, uh, you know, sharing ideas um, and also sharing the sing ray variable ND filter to dial in some darkness here. We captured the mist uh, rising from the stream uh, as there's, you know, there are hot springs that flow into the water here, making it warmer uh, than the surroundings. Uh, we were standing on a volcano, um, you know, or a volcanic mountain after all. Uh, I've actually become very disappointed with the variable ND filter though. I bought this for use with the 16 to 35 f2.82 lens um, because it has a, an 82mm filter and you, you can't find many ND uh, fil uh, filter thread I should say uh, but you can't find many 82mm ND filters around so that was why I bought it originally um, and I really do like the idea but in some conditions uh, on the wide lenses um, like this one, you know, like the 16 to 35, you, you really can't just sort of turn it very far without getting some really nasty banding. You know, some doesn't happen every time, but in some conditions. Um, and on this day, it was the first time that I'd seen uh, the big black cross that you can get across the entire frame. Uh, and so, you know, again, another sort of, I don't know, a nail in the coffin for the variable ND for me. Um, I, even even in this image, I was starting to get banding pretty soon, so I uh, I ge generally um, you know I turned it until I could just about see it, and then afterwards in Lightroom I had to uh, I had to use some local adjustments to to take out the the darker areas that were starting to form. Um, I do find the variable ND useful for longer telephoto lenses like the seventy to two hundred, so you know I'm not I'm not panning this totally, but on ultra wide lenses. Um, I, I personally would steer clear steer clear of it, and I'm I'm actually thinking of uh, just you know starting to look around again for an 82 millimeter threaded um, you know standard ND filter, so I, I don't have to use it. Um, the other thing that I should probably mention as well is that the 14 millimeter takes um, takes gelatin filters, so I've cut some of those out, um, and I have those with me now as well. So if I go even wider, I'm I'm still okay. Uh, so after breakfast, we the, you know the weather was pretty much the same. Uh, we did drive back up to the station because we were all back on the bus to, to leave the area, um, just to have a look. But literally just the same, and we gave up on the cable car. 
this was the second thing that we'd given up for for now um, on the trip, which again, you know, as I said before, it really can't be helped uh, because we're dealing with nature here uh, and obviously, you know, you can't control everything. Uh, we decided to make a start on the next leg of the plan. Uh, so we mo- we went over um, a 45 to an hour or so drive um, down the road to BA. And when we arrived, it was blowing a gale and um, snow was driving at us horizontally. You actually wouldn't know it looking at the next shot, which is number 2180. This looks quite peaceful, but actually the snow is driving really hard past me towards these dried up grasses at the side of the road. They were blowing pretty, blowing around pretty badly, of course, uh, but you know things that are blowing around generally sort of tend to sway pretty rhythmically. So you can, you can time your shots to happen at one extreme of their motion. Uh, before they start swaying back the other the other way, and obviously they stop at that point. Um, plus, I raised the ISO to 200, which with an aperture of f5.6 required a shutter speed of one thousandth of a second uh, for this shot. So it was easy enough to stop the motion. Although there there's literally no way to tell. What you're actually looking at here is the snow on the top of the bank at the side of the road. Um, they plough the roads, but basically the fields and things at the side, many places, um, you know, the snow comes up pretty high. And, uh, and obviously, with the, you know, we've got grasses here, so there's obviously bank there as well. Um, but basically, you know, I was looking sort of up at, the, at this bank slightly, and then, uh, you know, above that is pretty much sky. The snow has just totally whited it all out, though, you know, so that's really what you're looking at. We'd actually stopped the bus at this location, though, to shoot a tree um, that we, you know, we shot a number of times over the next few days, and it was on the other side of the road. Um, and it was after doing those, you know, making those shots that I, uh, I, I did this one. Um, but I won't bring up the first, the first version because, um, you know, from this uh, location, just because, you know, I really wanted, I wanted to include just one. And that's going to be the next one. What we did was we drove around the corner a little bit more um, to get a slightly different perspective at the tree. And um, that that this one, uh, and there's another vertical one that we're going to look at, are probably my favourites of this tree. And the one that we want to look at today is number 2183. As I said uh, before, you know, I will put a, a link in the show notes that will list all of the shots from the trip. So if you want to take a look at the horizontal, uh, sorry, the vertical version as well, please do. Uh, and also, you know, the other the other shots from here. Um, but, you know, we here again, you know, we're shooting in driving snow, but this time it was coming almost straight at us. Uh, I shot this with the 300mm f2.8 lens, which is, it's got a big front element. Um and I must have wiped the front of the element off 10, maybe even 15 or 20 times while we were shooting at this location. Even with the, the hood on, there's no way to stop the snow from hitting the front element. What you do is, uh, you know, you keep the camera turned away from the, from the snow uh, until you're ready to shoot. Then you spin it back around, compose your shot quickly, get a shot or, to- or two, and then uh, turn it away again. And pretty much every time I turned the camera back away, I had to wipe the front element. Um, I really do love this shot, though. I I have um, a few, like I say, um, there's a number of versions of this tree, um, and some of them are virtually, there's nothing else in the frame except this, except the tree 
uh, surrounded by this very light grayish white. And, you know, I like them all, but this one uh, with the texture in the, the foreground, the detail in the hill across the bottom third of the frame, giving us just a little bit more context uh, is, is probably my favorite. And then, like I say, the vertical version of this as well. Um, I printed this out on 13 by 19 inch paper last week. Um, I, I printed it on the Hanemule Museum etching paper, uh, one of Canon's, well, one of Hanemule's Canon rebranded um, fine art papers. And it's just amazing. Um, you know, I literally had the hair on the back of my neck was standing up when I looked at it. And I've said it before, you know, but I'll say it again. It's just so gratifying to create a good quality print of something like this. Um, you know, many of the shots excite me on the monitor, uh, but it's just a totally different experience holding that heavy tactile paper in your hand. This tree doesn't have a name, um, and I, you know, not one that I was able to find at least, but many of the trees in the BA area are actually named, like the parent and child trees that we can see in image number 2184. These are shot from the same place as the last image. I don't think I even rooted my tripod for this. You, you just have to spin around literally say 90 degrees, 80 or 90 degrees to your right. Um, the, the base of these trees is hidden slightly by the hill, which is, um, you know, where they're up on the top of a hill and that's, what you, that's why you can see the, uh, the bottom of the trees is all sort of, you know, whited out there. Uh, you can't see down to the bottom of the trunks. Um, and at this time of the year, it's pretty much impossible to get to a location where you can shoot them without uh, this being the case. Uh, you know, you can walk up the hill a little way, but then you lose the angle at the trees and you're looking across them and they sort of, you know, they hide the middle one and stuff like that. So this is, this is pretty much how it is in the wintertime. Um, I still like the resulting image, though, with the driving snow again whiting out much of the scene leaving just sort of daddy tree and mummy tree and then, uh, you know, junior in the middle there. And, you know, there's just a tiny bit of texture and gradation in the foreground. Uh, but again, a very minimalistic look here. Another reason why I had to clean my lens so many times here was because, you know, there was only a certain amount of times where you could see the trees this well. The, you know, th this was actually the point where the snow was had died down a little bit. Uh, some of the shots were just totally white. You know, you, I I was trying to time it so that we got a, a break, but it was, you know, some of them, the snow had just obscured the, the view of the trees totally. It was pretty cold, uh, as you'd imagine. Um, you know, the snow was not only driving against the front element of the, of the lens, but also it's in your face um, and just coming right at you. And some of the guys had already gotten back on the bus, uh, but some of us, you know, we worked the scene a little longer. I would stay out as long as anyone else wanted to anyway, but I'm lucky in that uh, my hands actually get very warm when I'm shooting, even without gloves, and it's in pretty pretty cold weather. Um, you might remember we, we were looking at the photos, uh, I think it was in, in episode two of this series, where I showed you my tripod uh, when we were on the Bihoro Pass, and in about an hour, um, it was literally covered in hoarfrost. Um, and so, you know, at that time, um, I remember, you know, I was there working with, again with no gloves on. Um, for most of the time, I do wear them sometimes, but for most of the time, no gloves. Everyone else is, is sort of wrapped up balaclavas, gloves and everything. And uh, I remember sort of touching the face of a few of the guys to show them how warm my hands were. And it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, 
And a few weeks after we got back from the trip, Aaron, one of the participants, uh, mailed me a link to uh, an article about hypothermia. And there was an interesting reference to something called Hunter's Response. It mentioned, as an example, uh, Norwegian fishermen or Inuit hunters that often work gloveless in cold conditions and have a response which warms up their hands to enable them to carry out intricate tasks. I think this is what's happening to me. I actually do get um, very cold hands if I'm just standing around doing nothing. But once I start to take photos, my hands warm up. And I, I think, you know, I used to think that this was simply because I get excited when I'm taking photos. But it would make sense um, that the reaction is more down to my body ensuring that I'm able, able to use the fingers uh, in the cold, and as, as mentioned in this reference to the hunter's response. I'm sure that there's, you know, there's a lot in this as, you know, I can imagine that it, if it's a toss up between uh, being able to use tools in the cold or not catching food to live, then those that uh, had evolved um, the ability to sort of, you know, to push some blood into their hands to, to warm them up instead of doing what your body should do, uh, which is to take the, you know, take the blood out of the hands to stop the extremities, you know, takes the blood out of the extremities to stop you from um, cooling the blood down and then starts to cool your core temperature down. Um, but, you know, my body's saying, okay, I, I can I can handle having a slightly colder core temperature because, you know, you need to use these hands right now. Um, and so it's, you know, it's kind of doing this hunter's response thing, I think. Um, and so, you know, imagine that years ago, or, you know, probably thousands of years ago, uh, when these, uh, the Inuit hunters or whatever were out there um, trying to trying to, you know, kill food to live, if you know that some of them have warmed up hands that enables them to catch food, uh, they'd have a better chance of surviving, of course, and making it a little bit further down the evolutionary chain, uh, at least in these uh, cold climate countries. And also, when you think about it, Britain was invaded by the Vikings and other uh, European countries, and you know a lot of places um, over the over the millennia. Uh, so you know, I I don't think it would uh, it would be that far fetched to think that one of my ancestors was a Norwegian fisherman or an Inuit hunter. So as we were now very close, uh, we decided to move another plan uh, a day forward and visited the, the Takushinkan, which is a, the gallery of the deceased or the late photographer uh, that put BA on the map, uh, and his name is Shinzo Maeda. It's a beautiful gallery, and his son Akira is also now displaying images there. So if you're in the area ever, you know, uh, hopefully on one of my tours, but, you know, if you're in the area at any, at any time, I do recommend that you take a look. Uh, some of the people on the tour confessed to not expecting much of this place when they saw it on the itinerary, but came away very happy that we'd visited. Behind the gallery uh, is the scene that I captured in image number 2186. We'd spent a fair amount of time shooting out here when, just as we were thinking of leaving, um, I'd actually started to pack up my things. The sun burned through the clouds a little, uh, enabling me to catch this, capture this image. There was a, a natural vignette already, but as you know, this what, what this basically did was prompted me to add a little more in Lightroom, a slightly more um, sort of vignette effect around the edges, uh, which I think suits the image. I shot this with the 70-200 f2.8 lens at f8 for a thousandth of a second at ISO 100. As I'd already started to pack myself up, as I say, I, 
I remember rushing feverishly to get set up again uh, to, you know, unscrewing the tripod legs and getting everything set back up to really try to try and capture this before the light was gone. And I'm, I'm pleased that I made it. The last image that we're going to look at today is number 2187. And this is the shot that some of you kindly voted for in the February assignment on minimalism, putting me in second place. And at the top of the hill, um, you know, in the, the last shot, if you imagine this, um, there's actually a road which runs through the hills and, you know, just a little bit further along the road, you can't see it from where we were, but just a little bit further along the road is this hut with the beautiful rust red roof. And we stopped and just used the height of the bus, um, you know, shooting from the windows for this shot. Uh, without the, the sun now, I, I was shooting at one one hundred twenty fifth of a second at f8, still at ISO 100. I was shooting handheld, of course, uh, but resting on the refrigerator box thing at the front of the bus. Everyone else grabbed a window and sort of, you know, opened the windows up and rested on the uh, on the seats headrests, and you know, everyone just sort of got a you know a few nice shots. I've not seen everyone else's uh, how how everyone else framed this yet. Um, I personally here yeah, I like the way there's just a slight difference in color of the sky, making it stand out just slightly against the snow of the hill. Uh, there's also a little bit of texture in in that white expanse, which uh, I purposely included a lot of. Uh, I I do like to put small objects like this off in one corner, often sort of, you know, further towards the corner than the rule of thirds would normally have us do. Uh, you know, I do like the rule of thirds, and I I use it a lot. But sometimes I just like to push little things like this out a little bit further. As we drove off, one of the guys said, uh, "Well spotted, Martin." Uh, but I, I felt that, you know, it only right that I mentioned that uh, there was no luck involved here. I, I knew that this hut was on the hill. I've shot in this um, in this area in other seasons and I, I, I had every intention of driving past to shoot it while we were out here. And this is one of the most valuable things that joining me on the photography tours in Hokkaido will give you. I know the area very well. So, you know, I make sure that we get to the places where the opportunities are uh, weather permitting, of course. So that's it for this week. We'll be finishing the Hokkaido series next week, as I say, with part five. Uh, we'd got a good crop of images from this afternoon in, B in the BA area on the 22nd. Um, but with the, the following day, on the 23rd uh, of February, uh, we just had another amazing day. So join us next week to see Heaven on Earth, which is literally what I named one of the photos from this following day. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we finish today. I um, Firstly, I'll be locking the assignment album at the mbpgalleries.com website tomorrow, uh, which uh, for most of you will be the, the end of March, the 31st of March. Um, for me, it'll be the 1st of April. And I'll turn on the, the voting um, for two weeks uh, as usual to find out to who the top three images uh, who, or who shot the top three images um, that based on your votes and the, the theme by the way uh, for April the month of April is going to be uh, because you know it starts on April Fool's Day tomorrow so I'm thinking humorous um, open to interpretation as usual uh, so you know just surprises with your depiction of humorous uh, I'd also like to call out for anyone that enjoys this podcast, and hopefully that's why you're listening right now. 
um, to mail a link to the podcast page at martinbaileyphotography.com. Um, it's basically, you know, martinbaileyphotography.com slash podcasts.php. Um, or go to that page and grab the iTunes subscription link from the top and mail it to anyone that you think might be interested. Uh, I'd, you know, I'd like to thank all of you that have kindly left comments on iTunes in the iTunes store, uh, as this really does help to keep us up there on that uh, uh, the visual arts podcast page. Uh, the, you know, the more listeners, the better, though. So I really would like to sort of you know to try and uh, and build the the listener base a little bit more. So if you've got a minute, please uh, mail it, mail around the links and introduce a few of your friends and family to uh, to the you know to the show. Uh, you can also drop me a line with questions or suggestions, uh, and you know, I, I didn't used to give them an email address out, but I think I, uh, I'm getting so much spam these days that I'm not too worried. Um, you know, so you can just mail me at contact at martinbaileyphotography.com, or you can still, of course, PM me in the forums uh, or use the contact form on the website if you're not around an email client. Uh, if you use Twitter, you can follow me with Martin Bailey, which is uh, all one word with no spaces. And that just about does it for today. So you have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye. The Martin Bailey Photography Podcast is a proud member of the Photocast Network. Find this and other great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com.